Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club podcast. So if you're listening to this over on the regular for the love podcast feed, welcome. We'd love to bring these over to you. This is what we do in the Jen Hatmaker Book Club. Every single month, in addition to reading an incredible book and experiencing our subscription book club box and everything that comes in it, we get an exclusive interview with our book's author. Of course, obviously for me, this is my very favorite thing about book club. And we get to ask the author our personal questions and talk to her or him, mostly her. We we primarily feature women, but what our responses have been, what our re- reaction to her book and characters are. And anyway, and this week is no exception. We have the absolutely incredible Sarah Blake, who wrote this month's book, which is called the guest book. I think there's just something about a family drama story in the summer, which is why we chose it for July. This is exactly what we get in the guest book. Family drama intertwined with some mystery and with some intrigue, in this case, some really like complicated history as well. It's kind of the perfect way to engross ourselves. Like if we're on vacation or if we're sitting by the pool or by the beach or we're traveling or just winding down a summer night, right? Like sitting on our porch or propped up in our beds, an engrossing drama, like a page turner is just kind of what summer ordered. We got a little bit of this last month. Our June book selection for Jen Hemmaker Book Club was When We Believed in Mermaids. And based on the conversations in our book club community, everyone loved that choice. It had it all too. And so I am just absolutely thrilled to bring you our incredible author, of this month's book, Sarah Blake. And you may know Sarah from her just like absolutely runaway hit book she wrote called The Postmistress. That was my first introduction to Sarah, my first book of hers that I read. And then the guest book came out in 2019. And I read it actually, and I tell her all this, but I read the guest book last year when I was at, you know, what I call me camp. My daughter Remy was at camp in Maine for a month. And so I was in Bar Harbor, Maine for three weeks. And I went to the little bookstore there called Sherman's. It's the oldest bookstore in Maine, right on the ocean. And I told the bookstore owner, I am so in love with everything here, this town, the ocean, the trees, how everything looks, how everything smells and sounds and feels. I need a novel, please, that's set here. What would you recommend? A wonderful summer read that is set right up here, like in Maine or just off the coast of Maine, because I already feel so immersed. And the bookstore owner said, you've got to read the guest book. And so if you go back and look at all my pictures that I posted last July from Bar Harbor, you will see the guest book in half of them. I took it everywhere with me until I was finished. I read it at every restaurant. I read it in between things. I read it sitting in the grass. (laughs) It's so good. And so the guest book was my me camp discovery last year. And I loved it. And I knew immediately that I wanted to put it in book club and that I wanted it to be a summer read. And so we put it in this July and I can't tell you how delightful it was to have this conversation with Sarah Blake. She is so smart. She's so interesting. She's so like well-read and well-researched and she had so many like salient things to say about the choices that she made in this particular book, about her characters, about history, particularly around racism and anti-Semitism. I mean, I I just found myself going, oh, golly, Sarah and I would be friends. And so this is a wonderful conversation with an incredible novelist who's so gifted at what she does. And so without any further ado, I would love to welcome to the show, author of several books, including a book of poetry. By the way, the guest book was New York Times bestseller, Amazon best book of 2019, and then found its spot at number one on the Indie Next list in May of 2019. We weren't the only ones who loved it, and you'll see why. So here she is, the absolutely extraordinary Sarah Blake. Okay, Sarah, I am so happy that you're here. I'm so happy to meet you. I read the guest book last summer and I took a trip, a month long, almost solo trip that I called me camp. My youngest daughter was at camp for a month and I thought, well, 
maybe I'll go to camp. I'll go to camp too. And I went to Bar Harbor for the whole time. And I went to Sherman's, which is their wonderful like bookstore, the oldest bookstore in Maine. Yeah. In that little town. And I said, I want a page turner that is set up here somewhere. Like I want a book that I can sit there and think, I just saw that. Or I know what that looks like. Or that is how the waters flow. (laughs) And the incredible bookstore owner put your book on my hands. Oh, that's such a great story. Isn't it? It so is. And so your book is precious to me. Like it symbolizes the most incredible trip, a bit of like a recovery adventure for me, um, kind of coming out of just such a year of loss. And then of course your book was so good. And so I told my team, the guest book needs to go in book club. Let's get this one on the books. And so here we are. I'm so happy to meet you. Wow. (laughs) That's like the best, best connection you can have, especially because I'm listening to your story and I'm thinking, you know, the guest book is also so much about that sense of understanding your place in generations so that, you know, your daughter, you know, that sense of like trying to figure, grapple with her leaving, but you're coming back and, you know, all those things. Totally. Yeah. It was layered. It was very layered for me. I identified with pieces of virtually all the characters and sort of the complexity of family across all sorts of boundaries. And so as I was, you know, reading through the guest book and there were just people coming in and out of the family in different ways and to different degrees of acceptance or not, I just, all of it felt so poignant. Anyway, it was just delightful and you are an incredible writer and I'm so happy to meet you today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) Okay. I've got some questions for you. By the way, the book club is loving your book. Just know that like we have a private Facebook group where we sort of have all of our dialogue and we're discussing characters and plot and everybody's like, whoa, this is a good summer read. I'm like, it is. It absolutely, it's kind of all in there, kind of mystery and intrigue and drama and love. Like you put everything in the bucket. Let's start here. Can you just tell me and the book club members just a little bit more about you and where you are in the world and how you came to be like such a profound novelist and who are your people? Like what's your life? Locate you for us in the world. Oh, okay. That sounds really easy. Okay. (laughs) What's your life? (laughs) Yes. What's your life? Just a very simple question. Okay. Well, I'll go just from the, you know, from the menu. Right now I'm sitting in my study, my workroom in our house in Cape Cod. So I'm, you know, up in New England in the summer. I live year round in Washington, D.C. with my husband, who's a poet. So I guess I would just say that I have always, always been a writer in some way or another, either in my imagination, but not, you know, books, but that's always... Whenever I'm in any situation, I realize now as a, you know, 60-year-old, I've always just entered every room and paid attention to like, what's going on over there? Or who's talking over here? And I started off as a poet and realized that I actually, I, I couldn't stop past, you know, I kept thinking like, well, but then what? And then what? And then what? So finally, I moved from writing poems, which can be very, you know, discreet and short sort of sections of writing into big, you know, into larger and larger and longer and longer plots. I've got a doctorate in Victorian literature and mm, uh, sure, as uh, one does. There, as one does. Really easy yeah. breezy doctorate in Victorian literature. Just why not? Why not? Super common. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in large part because I've just always been, you know, one of those girls who just likes to sit around and read on big couches and you know, like with big books and with many, and this is a long way of answering your, you know, the the sort of thing of the guest book. I love books that are many layered, have many plots, move, you think you're over here, but then you realize you're over there. And the Victorian novel, which is also always a novel that is trying to make sense of the world it's in that, that has, you know, kind of 
not well moral, but certainly has a, a sense of like social commentary. It's not only, and I'm putting that in parentheses in because of course every novel is always in some way about the world we're in, that it's trying to take on the world. And so that's, that's the sort of seeding ground for me. And so all of my novels in some way or another have really asked those questions. And this, you know, like, who are we inside this world that we find ourselves that my first novel was a 19th century novel straight up. I used all the you know diction of, of the 19th century. And then the second novel with the postmistress was a war novel. But this one, I really wanted to take on the history of racism and anti-Semitism in this, in this country. And particularly, I wanted to sort of answer that when Obama was running for president in 2008, he reminded us that his presidency was going to kick off a kind of racial you know, awareness. And especially he, he you know, invoked Faulkner's line, the past isn't dead in this country, it isn't even past. And so I wanted to think about why that is. And it seems that, you know, doing a family novel was going to help. I, that would be the way, it, you know, to think about all the layers and all the ways in which we pass on, continue, because we don't really know our own past. So mm. I love that. And I uh, commend you for deciding to tackle not just racism, but anti-Semitism in one fell swoop. I mean, those are two really big mountains to climb. And kind of as you just mentioned, you could have picked any number of decades or season in American history for sure and found a very reliable foothold into a story about racism or anti-Semitism. You picked the 1930s you know, as opposed to the civil rights era of the 60s or slavery before, you know, you picked the 30. And so can you talk about that choice? Because I imagine you probably had a lot to choose from, you know, you get to, you start here and you sort of narrow it down all the way until you're with Milton's, but you know, you start wide, where are we and when are we? So was there something about that particular era that was drawing you? Was it something that you read? Were you inspired? I'm curious why you picked that sort of decade, if you will, even though I know obviously we jump around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question because, I mean, I think I'm always drawn to not chronicling the sort of historical moments, the big, you know, sort of like 65 or, you know, the Civil War. I'm much more interested in like the moments before the moment. So, for example, you know, the postmistress was sent, it was set before we entered World War II, 1941. So this, I want to think about where the time period before it was very clearly, you know, what Hitler was, was up to and before even he declared war. I was interested in the time period in the early, the sort of early mid-30s. It starts in 35 and then there's a summer of 36. So it's those two years. But in both instances, because I wanted to think about the sort of anti-Semitism that was completely alive and current and on the surface in this country, I wanted to think about the ways in which, as I'm developing the, the patriarchs of the family, Kitty and Milton, I wanted to think about their relation to Germany and the ways in which their anti-Semitism might register. And in particular, Ogden, who's, you know, a, runs this big investment banking firm, he is doing business with, with the Nazi steel magnate because he believes, as many of his kind were did, because he believes that keeping order, keeping the German economy stable is the way to counter Hitler, which, of course, there's a kind of logic to that. But anyway, I was, I was very interested in trying to find the periods of time when they're sort of in the dark, but we can see exactly that this is how. Complicity takes for, you know, this, this is the way in which we participate without understanding that we're participating. And because my lens is always, how are we doing that now, like in the present? How is it that we make these judgment calls, we, we proceed as though, as we're, we're not fully paying attention to what we're doing? So 35 and 36, that was before the Olympics, the Hitler's Olympics, it was the Nuremberg laws had started, were starting just after. I was just interested in the ways in which you could see the beginnings of everything, but not fully understand the danger. 
That's really interesting social commentary from a novelist perspective too. Like I can feel my wheels turning because it's, of course, it's, it's clear to us in hindsight, we can read it with clear eyes. We read it through the lens of history, but also every generation is at the beginning of something important like this, a round of human rights or its regression, like we're in right this very minute. That is a really interesting place to look at it when it's not quite so on the nose. It's emerging. You give us, of course, the Miltons, who you make us love, even the complicated ones. And I think some of that is because you began the story with their tragedy. We start right out of the gate with just like the kind of unimaginable loss that, you know, makes it up the stuff of nightmares for parents. And so right away, like you have created, at least in me as a reader, a compassion for virtually everything that family does from then on out, that I see some of the origins of particularly Kitty, of course, but just what a brokenness that loss created. So I love to ask writers how they process a, a plot and a, and the story arc. How did you do this? Did you know early on, this is how I'm going to start. I'm going to start with a terrible tragedy. And then we're going to kind of build forward a life on that. Or did that come to you later? Did you have any different alternative beginnings than the one that you gave us? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So for me, the plot really begins when Elsa asks Kitty, you know, can you keep Lily? And Kitty's response, and again, this this is thinking again about the kind of anti-Semitism that is just very much bred in her in Kitty's bones, that she wouldn't even register as anti-Semitism, except for, of course, it is, because she thinks that Willie is a dark child, you know. But for me, you know, the conversation I had very early on in the beginning of writing this book in my head was Elsa asking Kitty, and Kitty's response being, but where would he sleep? You know, like something that's like logistic and not emotional and kind of detached. So that had, you know, I knew that that was the sort of center of, like that was going to be the, you know, the sort of nubble of of the story. But the more I wrote forward, I I, I didn't want either Kitty nor Ogden to be monsters, but Kitty in particular. I didn't want to have the anti-Semitism easily dismissible, like, oh, well, she's just that, or, oh, that's just that. I mean, similarly with the racism. I mean, this is always like, how are we as readers implicated? And so, so, so Kitty needed, to, I needed to do then some work to make her larger, to make her more complicated. And I, at first I thought, oh, well, she's had a sick child. She had whatever, just thinking about her children, you know, so probably three years into the writing of this or four late into the writing of this, I started again, I start my books over and over and over and over again. So this, you know, like, should I, is it here? No. Is it here? No. Is it here? Like I could, I'd started in the present. I started in the 50s. It all over the place. Finally, though, I started with Kitty and that, do you know that there's a great short story by Catherine Mansfield named Bliss, which has been one of always my inspirations in which a wife discovers something, you know, basically discovers that the life she thought she had is not the one she had is written in the 20s. And um, I wanted that kind of day, you know, where is just full of how good everything is. And I wrote it and kept writing and writing. I had no idea it was going through. I had no idea until it was obvious that that's what had to happen. And then I did, I felt as though, and this is, you know, totally to your point, I felt as though this is too much. This is too much. This is going to let Kitty off the hook. This is going to make it, you know, it's just going to set the bar too high in terms of how we enter. And so I said to my editor, you know, I, I can't, I'm not, I, I won't start there. I can't. It's, you know, it gives too much, for, it gives her too much of an out. And my editor was like, uh, no, yeah, that's definitely where you're starting. So then, then what was interesting is then it forced me then to make that moment with Elsa much harder. You know, like her anti-Semitism needed to be much clearer. And then also the way in which she operates throughout the rest of the book, in some senses, because she had had this big tragedy, I needed then to really put the screws more on her in a way. Exactly. So 
Yeah. And you did that. You did that because she's not a one note character. It wasn't as simple as this horrible thing happened. Thus, now we have this. It wasn't that simple. It was more complex than that. She was frustrating sometimes. I had both compassion and frustration with her. And so I appreciate that you you didn't necessarily spare her accountability in the rest of the book, but you did give us enough background that we were able to love her and like have share some of her pain. I, I think one thing that I really loved about the guest book, I tend to like this in novels. So this this may be like a reader preference, but I very much appreciated that you gave us the perspectives of so many different characters. I like that. I enjoyed that. I liked being in their thoughts and in their brains. And and I walked around with your book for a handful of days in Maine because I'd read it everywhere. I read it at a bar. I read it over dinner. I read it perched by the ocean. I mean, I just, until I could get through that thing. And I had a piece of paper that I had torn out of my calendar and I had written, I'd made like a, a who's who of the book, who, who goes with who, and then this one, and then this person, and I had it all written out, and I had little identifiers <laughs> under each of their names, and regularly, at least in the first half of the book, until I was well-versed, I'd pull out my chart and be like, okay, who, oh yeah, I got it, put it back in my book, and read it, <laughs> anyway, but I loved it, because it made the book more complex, and more nuanced, and it wasn't just this myopic perspective. So I'm curious as the writer, as the creator of all these characters and all their varied backgrounds and motivations and all the things that they brought to the table, was that challenging for you to keep their voices separated, their experiences separated? Because they, two of your characters could look at the exact same moment and feel differently about it. And so that strikes me as a real challenge to a novelist to bring that many disparate voices to the same story and keep it all square. Yeah, it was a huge, it was a yeah. huge challenge, but it was what I wanted to do. I wanted to see again, because I, especially thinking about families and how we're often echoing or repeating our parents or grandparents without knowing that that's what we're doing because we don't know fully who they are. I really wanted to think about that and about, or I wanted the novel to think about that. And I wanted, again, thinking about like, how is it in this country we keep the past present? It's because we keep repeating without understanding or seeing our repetitions. And so the goal and the delight was in fact, three generations of women, you know, grandmother, uh, daughter and granddaughter and the ways in which they would echo across, you know, a, a span of 80 years, how they would echo or how they would diverge and that the pleasure of the book, and, and certainly for me as a writer and hopefully for the reader, is watching the variations on the theme. But the theme continues. And the place, you know, the, the island that the Miltons keep returning to, their sense of themselves as Miltons, you know, their own mythology, that's in some ways, that's the, that's the beat. That's the base. That's what, you know, everybody has in them. But it's, it's, you know, getting the voices to like a good jazz, you know, sort of riff, the way that you can see and hear how voices are coming in and going out. But, you know, each one is kind of both holding the note, but also, you know, sort of diverging. So it was tremendously challenging also because I wanted to think about the ways in which I do believe that history exists like that. You know, we're past and present or always in conversation, always going on at the same time. And Evie, the third generation, she's very much, that's her historical point of view. But the challenge was actually how to con- how to structure this. Like how oh, to, yeah. without going like the 30, the 50. Totally, the right. 30. So in an- the very long answer to your question is it took, you know, that's why the book took nine years to write. Because it I- took nine years to write. I didn't know that. It did. Wow. But in part because I was trying, like, how did you, how do you do something that's a page turner, which is, you know, page turners are like you're, it's propulsive, right? It's like you have, it's going forward. But I wanted the, the action of the book to also be, you know, exactly. And it turns out that's really hard. That's really hard. 
<laughs> oh, enormous. <laughs> I didn't because, really realize that. Right. Because then you, even as we're going back, as we're looking back where the, the, in the, in the thirties, you have to like meet out the story in such a way that it is still propulsive, even though we're going back and forth, like bit by bit, that drama has to also unfold in a certain order and kind of in a certain way. And so, yeah, I can imagine that was enormously challenging. Did you ever like, I mean, at at the nine year mark, you've done a lot of rewrites. Did you ever write it linear or did you know from the get go, like that wasn't going to be the way you're going to tell it? I didn't write it fully linearly. I tried, you know, like what if, what if I, you know, if I sort of started with the thirties and then went into the fifties and it just felt kind of dead to me and not very interesting because I realized that the fun of it was back and forth and the repetition. And then, you know, once I realized that the anchor of it was the place, you know, was, was the Island and that, you know, places hold memory. And so if I could, you know, the return over and over so anyway, that gave me the kind of courage to, to sort of situate it, but move, you know, temporally. So I didn't have to go chronologically. The thing that actually helped the most with this was sort of halfway through the writing of it. My husband, who's a poet, had been given a fellowship and we lived in Berlin, our boys, for a year. And so the, do you remember the stumble stones that Paul brings back? To sure, to- of course. Those, the stumble stones, which are, you know, actual sort of brass paving stones that are they're embedded in the sidewalk in front of the last place a Jewish person lived or worked where they were taken are these markers that are all over the city and now they're all over Europe they started as a artist project but now they pretty much are everywhere but what they do is and I didn't sort of understand how important they'd be for me but or how useful I found myself wandering all through Berlin just sort of following them what they literally do is is they mark the spot where something actually happened, something where the past actually happened. And so I realized the more and more I would stop and, and look at them, and you know, often the, the building they were in front of wasn't there either because it had been bombed or sure. Know. I realized that what that those markers forced was this collapse between past and present. So literally I would stand there and and think. Who would I have been in the moment that this this stone is marking? Would I have been the person taking taken? No, because I'm not Jewish. So would I have been the woman in the window up there watching? Would I have been the man fixing the bicycle? You know, where would where would I have been? And so the the marker sort of had the the past interrupts the present, demanding the present to ask. Who are you now? Who are you in this? You know, who would you have been then? Who are you now? And and it occurred to me that you know, in this country, and this was in 2012, so 10 years ago, before Brian Stevenson's lynching memorial. You know, now we we are more and more having exterior markers. You know, where enslaved people were in marketplaces. But at the time, I said, what would it have been if our country had markers like? And so then that made me think, what if I could embed a marker in the novel that in some way, you know, that we can see, like we can see Kitty walking round and round the place on the island where she said to Reg, where she, you know, basically lied and where she denied Elsa, but she can't and the next generations can't, but that the, the way that that was the way. So the question always is, Will what she said to, to Elsa come out? That's the way to keep it forward. And that it return to the place, the fact that there is no marker except in Kitty's head and in the book. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I can't imagine it another way because, of course, I experienced the finished product. But whatever iterations you had to drop on the cutting room floor to get to the one that you landed on, you made all the right choices it moved us forward while also like sending us backward, which is a feat. Like that's not an easy task. You made it seem easy as a reader, but I I know that it wasn't. Faith can be such a polarizing topic in our culture today. Like in an era where your religious beliefs might be all mixed up 
with your political views, your moral compass, and your perspective on others who believe differently, man, many of you know that my own faith journey has not been without lots of mess and debris and rubble, but what has been rebuilt, I would not exchange for anything in this world. The mess and all that wrestling with faith, it became beautiful. And I'm here to tell you that it can for you too. I've heard from so many of you in this community that you are experiencing tension in this category too. You're not alone for sure. Maybe it's a complicated relationship with church. Um, Maybe some things just aren't sitting right. Things that you were taught early on. Maybe you're having trouble answering hard questions on big issues. Uh, It's one of the reasons I wanted to put together a me course Uh, which is my e-course series, on the topic of faith, specifically the process of deconstruction and then reconstruction. It can be very isolating to be in a space of questioning. But I am here to tell you that asking questions and going through this process is not something to be seen with shame or negativity. Like It's the exact opposite. The incredible Sarah Bessie of Evolving Faith joins me for this me course too. She is my favorite leader in this space. I'm so honored um, to put this particular course in your hands. It's four beautiful sessions that will comfort you and educate you and inspire you and load you up with tons of resources for where to find community and support in your journey, books to read, resources to follow, so much more. So head over to mecourse.org to learn more. This course on faith and deconstruction and reconstruction is my fifth e-course. So we have a library of other options for you too, along with some incredible bundle offers for savings on all the courses. So check it all out at mecourse.org. If you are not a member of the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, what in the world are you waiting for? It's time to come join the club. We're even offering you $5 off your first month to check us out over at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We have some amazing books lined up and great authors for you to get to know. And when you're a member, you get so much stuff every month. Um, Of course, you get the book box with the book and a special gift and a little love note for me. Um, But you also get a whole bunch of digital resources like discussion guides and custom content and music playlists from our authors. I also host video podcasts with me and our author from that month, as well as Facebook live chats where you have a chance to get on Zoom with me to talk about our book that month. We're also rolling out more virtual events and in-person experiences in the near future. And we do this thing called Golden Tickets, where we send little surprise gifts and fun things to members just because. Finally, we have the best community ever, where of course we talk about the books, but also about so many other things, every other thing, all of life. And we have local chapters that meet in real life sprinkled all across the country. I'm telling you, these are your people. Come and join us. Use the code READ, that's R-E-A-D, for $5 off your first month at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. I want to talk about the island for a minute. It's like a character. It's as important as a character, if not more so, in the whole book. And I loved it. I loved the way that you built it. I loved the way that you described it. I loved the sense of place, generation after generation. That's very identifiable. I mean, most of us don't have a private island, but we have a place that our grandparents went to and our parents went to, and it's special to us, and we want our kids to love it. That through line felt really relatable. And did keep your story very connected, of course. That was what everyone kept returning to. I'm curious how the island came to you as a novelist. Do you have like personal experience with a place like that? Were you inspired by something? The the way that you described it was so specific and so correct. It was just, it was so accurate. And all I can see is like Kennedy's and uh, you just painted such a vivid picture of the place. And so 
You could have, again, chosen anything. You could have chosen a family home somewhere else. You had choices and you chose the island. And so I'd love to hear about what it is that brought you to the island, how you envisioned it, how it kind of came to be in your imagination and then ultimately on the pages. I mean, starting with this idea of a place that, that, you know, binds us and defines us. I mean, I do think it's important to register that it could, you know, this, this is obviously a place, you know, an island and a, and a house, but I feel like the kinds of things that I'm interested in take place even around, let's say, you know, if you return to your grandparents' dinner table. For, for sure. There are, pla- you know, places that hold us. Yeah. And you do a whole novel in conversation over three generations or in one room, you know, where that's, you know, things like that. So I, I just want to sort of register that. But in terms of this island, as I say, I, I was I wanted this novel to take a look at, you know, the history of racism and anti-Semitism. And in particular, I was wanted to look at it in, in terms of my family. Like, what was the history inside family like mine? I absolutely come from a family like the Miltons, though, you know, wasp, old money, very much with a sense of our place. And but the legacy of that. And what it looks like over time is something I really wanted to interrogate in, in this novel. Probably the truest thing, I mean, the, the characters in the novel are, you know, they are my fiction, but the kind of family, the kind of belief system, the fact that something like what happened to Nettie in the first chapter would go on unmentioned, like not spoken of. Totally. Absolutely the way I grew up. You, would mm. you just wouldn't the probably the truest the truest part of the novel is the island because in fact in 1937 my grandparents did sail off the coast of Rockland see a for sale sign on one on the dock of one of these granite islands and bought it. So I did the island is absolutely very much it's in some ways what made me a writer not just that place but also the you know four generations of voices. That are moving in and out of rooms. My the first not my first novel, Grange House, also takes place out there. I find that Maine is there's something about that coastline that is the landscape of my imagination. So the island is is correct because <laughs> it's completely embedded in me. And I mean, I didn't write it up there. I, I live, you know, as they say in DC, and that's the kind of physical. The physicality of the novel comes from something that is lived and true. Then there's just the obvious fact. If I'm writing a novel about a family that is full of its own mythos and full of its own narrative and, you know, the half-truths that are half half fun. I mean, what better metaphor than an island? It's very romantic. You know, it was just a very romantic setting for the story. And... I can like immediately go back to last summer when I was reading it and I was just there. Like my brain was there the whole time. I, this very second, I can recall like the rooms and the plants and the dock. Like I could just see it all in my head. You painted such a beautiful picture of it. And so I'm going to, I'm getting close to landing the plane here with you, but I'm curious if you had did you have a character that you loved the most or a storyline that you loved the most? Were you, I always find it interesting when a novelist tells me that they wanted something to go a certain way for a character that they love and the book just wouldn't let it go that way. They weren't allowed to write that in the, the way that they were hoping and the character suggested something else or the story or the truth, whatever. And so I always love to hear, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this is a character that I was really dialed into and maybe this is one direction I thought I would take him or her, but that's not the way it went. Well, you know, it's funny because the obvious love story of the novel is between, well, Kitty and, and Ogden are in a deep way. Is that between Joan and, and Len? And that was a fun love story to write. And, Joan is a character that I really understood, you know, and the, the, her inability to go with Len, I understand, you know, made, so, so those two, and then Len's, you know, sort of great sorrow that she couldn't see that she was bigger than the island herself, that she should come, you know, 
with him. But more and more and more, the two characters that I, besides Evie, who obviously is a stand-in for me, you know, who's like trying to make sense of what's gone before her. And of course, the great irony of Evie, who, you know, is a historian, but doesn't know her own history at all. You know, that was fun. But Moss and Reg were the two characters that I think I was most attached to for reasons. One of the things that besides the besides what the first chapter does in terms of establishing Kitty, it also establishes Moss. I mean, Moss is always, as he says at the very, very end, you know, his mother had always looked at the space, you know, beside him, not at him, that he always felt that he was, you know, there was a, you know, the ghost and, and that nobody had spoken to him about it. So, of course, that moment of Nettie disappearing out the window is in Moss, but there's no, you know, place to put it. And he becomes a musician. He is this kind of hopeful, I mean, this, this sort of great, glorious hope that I think was true of the, of the late 50s. The fact that he's also white and rich and able is something that he can't see. And, you know, so Reg's perspective on, you know, Reg says he goes up to the island to make Moss see, you know, so by putting himself forward, here I am, the only black man, certainly on this island and probably, you know, on this coast, or, you know, right now in 1959, and wanting Moss to be able to see, see what was there. That wasn't possible. And so Moss, you know, Moss was one of those characters that I, I felt so attached to and I mean he to me is the sort of the pathos, the great pathos of his character was one that really inspired me. And he's a musician and I, I also was an a cappella singer and my sister is a singer. And so music and that that sort of the belief that you can hear so much in the kind of unity of voices. But Reg, for me, James Baldwin has always been like a, a primary, Baldwin and Wolf, and they both have the epigraphs of this book, has been a primary, primary inspiration for me, both as a, as a person, as a white person, but definitely as a writer and, and the ways in which he's able to both, you know, recall the past and, and bring it to bear on the sort of each immediate, you know, present. So Reg was very clearly, obviously, anybody who's, you know, Louis Baldwin knows that Reg is very much his, you know, sort of Baldwin's the avatar of Reg. But the surprise was, I didn't think Reg was going to come back. Oh. Hmm. Okay, that is so cheesy. I mean, that's. But the more and more and more, it became clear that Evie had to know. Yeah. And the only person who actually knows the story. Yeah. Is the person who's not in the castle which is not something I knew at all. And the very, very first book club, so shout out to all of you guys, the very first book club I did, like literally the day after the book came out, somebody said, you know, you realize that Reg is the only person who's not in this. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's, so, it, you know, so that's the sort of writing Reg and, you know, loving Reg and wanting to think about what does it mean for Reg to be the one who actually tells the story? So that was a surprise and also uh, a kind of joy. That yeah, I loved that. I I actually loved the way that you concluded it. I found resolution where I wanted it, even amidst a very complicated family. You know, it's not like it was tidy. You didn't make it tidy. It couldn't have been, but you did give us resolution in ways that like, let me exhale a little. You end up holding your breath through a great deal of your novel, just from what people don't know. And the sadness is that they're kind of enduring privately. And, and so I really appreciated the way that you landed the story. I can just see it so much on the big screen. Do you have any dreams for it like that? Oh, I mean, yeah, I'd love, I mean, of course, I'd love to see it. it. Just because, you know, I love these big, juicy <laughs> stories. Juicy, beautiful. The cinematography of it all could just be so sweeping and majestic and, and foggy. 
Yeah, moody and like haunting. I can see it. Right now I'm in a little town in Minnesota called Grand Marais. I'm on I'm on Lake Superior. Yeah. And see it out your window. Oh yeah. Yeah, you sure can. It's it's island, it's rocky, it's foggy. I, I just I've I've written like three movies out here. In fact, I also went to the teeny little bookstore called Drury Lane bookstore. It's the the little local place here. And I said, like I did last year, I need a novel set right here. Like, what do you recommend? And so I'm reading a book called The Lightkeeper's Daughters right now. So who knows, maybe we'll put that in book club too. But I absolutely loved the guest book. Just loved it. And I've read your other books too. You're just such a marvelous writer. We have to know what you're working on right now. Writer's always writing or dreaming, one of the two or both. So do you have your little fingers on the laptop pecking out a new story for us? Can we know about it? I'm going to show you, so we don't lose you, on the floor. Oh, mercy. Yep. Yep. Like, you know, tacked to the wall. Okay. (laughs) I'm in the middle of a spy novel. A spy novel. Yeah. Is it like, is it modern day or is it old fashioned? Well, it's kind of both, but it's, no, it's set right now. It's set in, it's set probably in the six weeks between the election of 2024 and the inauguration, because that's the most perilous time as we know. Oh, wow. But it revolves around a document from Reconstruction. So, I mean, because I, love, I mean, I love, you know. How does the history, you know, come in? So I have been, for the last three years, I've been really interested in the ways in which we're repeating or, you know, recollecting reconstruction. And, you know, obviously I'm not alone in this at all. It's more and more people are very clearly seeing. So I made up a document that has the capacity to blow the roof off the country if it's discovered. And of course, the Russians know about it. And there's two groups that are after it. The one of the groups is a line that's only women and mostly in their 50s and 60s. And then there's two master spies who are in their 80s from who were scouts as children in Berlin during the Nazi. Oh, this is exciting. Oh, that's very exciting. But once again, even just saying it aloud, it's like, and I don't know how I'm putting this I on. Mean, that's a lot going on. You just said a lot of things. We've got Russia. We've got Berlin. We have the the women of age solving the crimes. We've got Washington. This is a really, this is fun because my experience of you thus far has kind of been a different type of story arc. Like this is, it's probably fun to write. It's got to be. This is the thing. After I finished the guest book, I really was like, I just want to blow things up. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just, I wanted to like do some action. I wanted to write. Yeah. So that was my challenge for this one. Yeah. Guest book was about a family novel. This was like, let's see if I can do this. Oh, this is exciting. You're three years into it. Yeah. I mean, the guest book came out 2019. I pretty much, I was doing research while it was guest book was in production. So but I haven't, I've started writing it probably two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, please tell me that we don't have to wait for nine years. <laughs> it's, please tell me <laughs> that time frame is going to be so, shut up. That's also, that's my other uh, hidden challenge is like to get this, you know, out in three years. So we'll okay. See. I like it. Oh, this is so exciting. Does it have a title or no? Uh, no. I mean, okay. yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, totally. The working <laughs> titles are always exactly that. I never get married to a single one of my titles, literally until the book is published and on a shelf somewhere. Okay. Very last question. I promise you this one is it. We would just love to know, obviously our favorite writers are always readers. They always have been. So we'd love to know what you're reading right now, or, or maybe like if you're going to say, these are a couple of favorites that I would insist that everybody read either way, either a current book or one that you pull out over and over. So this is the book that I'm, I just started and I'm about, and, and it's called A Ghost in the Throat. Oh, good title. Marianne Migriofia. She's okay. um, Irish. 
and it's your debut novel and it is gripping and it looks like it's just going to get, you know, better and better. And it's one of those books that, you know, how this happens too, where sometimes, I don't know, three months ago, every single person I just sort of was having dinner with or, you know, talking on the phone, they were like, have you read a ghost? In the totally. He's going. Yes. Out. Yes. By the seventh time, somebody mentions the same book to you. You're like, that's fine. That's okay. I'll order it today. Yes. Must. Uh-huh. Uh A ghost in the throat. What an intriguing like title that makes me want to read it. It's a, you know, contemporary, it's a sort of a contemporary novel. So it's like, it seems very memoirish. She's a a mother and, and she's, you know, has small children, but she's always identified with this ancient Celtic poet, a woman. So it goes, you know, of course, that's what I love. goes back and forth, but it's also these, these voices, you know, that are tense. I mean, I, I don't know in terms of, you know, the thing that you must read, I guess what I would say is the book that I return to over and over is The Lighthouse always. And that's, you know, that's very much, that's sort of what's in me. Perfect. That's perfect. Thank you for those suggestions. I'll put those in front of the whole book club. Well, do just let me tell you that I know I've said it earlier, but I have, I just enjoy your work so very much. You're such a reliable author because you're so gifted and the way that you tell a story, the way that you envision plot and characters in place is so enchanting and so compelling. And I've never not enjoyed a single page of your books. And so it really is just such a pleasure to meet you. And, and the book club feels the same. Everybody's like three cheers. I'm like, I know, I know three cheers for Sarah. And so we will line up outside the bookstore when the spy novel comes out. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to meet you. Bye-bye.